Good afternoon, everyone. Scripture prophesies that Jesus Christ, who is God, is coming soon to administer his government over the entire world. Looking forward to the second coming of Jesus Christ, we read in the Revelation, book of Revelation, uh, chapter 11, verse 15, it says, Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So it's at the time of the second sounding of the seventh angel, the second coming of Jesus Christ, that the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of Jesus Christ, and he will reign, as it says, forever and ever. Another prophecy of this we read in Daniel 7, beginning with verse 13. Daniel 7, verse 13, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him, that is to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all, all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him, his dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. Now, we need to understand that there is going to be a great deal of difference between that government, the government under Jesus Christ, and the governments of today's world. Among the qualities of that government, the government that is to rule all nations for eternity, one of the qualities is justice. In a Messianic Psalm, Psalm 97 and verse 1, it speaks of that. It says, The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice, let the multitude of isles be glad. Clouds and darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. In Isaiah 30 and verse 18, Isaiah 30 and verse 18, we read, The Lord is a God of justice. The Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are those who wait for him. In today's sermon, I want to address the subject of God as the God of justice. The God of justice. God indicts Israel and the world for its lack of justice. For its lack of justice. There are many scriptures about this. We'll read a few of them. But in one of them, Micah chapter 3 and beginning with verse 1, Micah 3 and verse 1, it says, Hear now, O heads of Jacob, and you rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice? Is it not for you to know justice? In other words, what we're reading here is that rulers, those who are put in places of authority and in government ought to understand justice. 
But here's the question. It says, you rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice? And of course the answer would be assumed to be yes, but it goes on to say, you who hate good and love evil, who strip the skin from my people and the flesh from their bones, who also eat the flesh of my people, flay their skin from them, break their bones, and chop them in pieces like meat for the pot, like flesh in the cauldron. Then they will cry to the Lord, but he will not hear them. He will even hide his face from them at that time because they have been evil in their deeds. So here God is indicting Israel for injustice, especially among the leaders, but it really pervades the entire body of the people that is the uh, nation. God asked the leaders, the rulers, again in Psalm 82 and verse 2, Psalm 82 and verse 2, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? That's the question God has for the rulers of this world. In Isaiah 51, or excuse me, Isaiah 59, beginning with verse 1, Isaiah 59 and verse 1, we read, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity, your lips have spoken lies, your tongue has muttered perversity. No one calls for justice, nor does any plead for truth. They trust in empty words and speak lies. They conceive evil and bring forth iniquity. They hatch vipers' eggs and weave the spider's web. He who eats of their eggs dies, and from that which is crushed a viper breaks out. Their webs will not become garments, nor will they cover themselves with their works. Their works are works of iniquity, and the act of violence is in their hands. Their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Wasting and destruction are in their paths. The way of peace they have not known. There is no justice in their ways. There's no justice in their ways. They have made themselves crooked paths. Whoever takes that way will not know peace. Therefore, justice is far from us, nor does righteousness overtake us. We look for light, but there is darkness for brightness, but we walk in blackness. We grope for the wall like the blind, and we grope as if we had no eyes. We stumble at noonday as at twilight. We are dead. We are as dead men in desolate places. We all growl like bears and moan sadly like doves. We look for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us and as for our iniquities, we know them. 
in transgressing and lying against the Lord and departing from our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart words of falsehood, justice is turned back and righteousness stands afar off for truth is fallen in the street and equity cannot enter. So truth fails and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. That's pretty much today's world. But it goes on to say that the Lord saw it and, dis and it displeased him that there was no justice. So we live in a world with no justice or very little justice and all kinds of evil proliferating and growing like a massive tumor. When we speak of justice, exactly what is it that we are referring to, though? What is justice? What is justice? In the 1913 Webster Dictionary, I'm going to read you some definitions from this source. It says, justice is, first, the quality of being just, a conformity to the principles of righteousness and rectitude in all things strict performance of moral obligations, practical conformity to human or divine law, integrity in the dealings of men with each other, rectitude, equity, uprightness. Those are some ideas that correspond with what justice is. A second definition given in this same source is conformity to truth and reality in expressing opinions and in conduct, fair representation of facts representing merit or demerit, honesty, fidelity, impartiality as the justice of a description or of a judgment, historical justice. Another definition from the same source, the rendering to everyone his due or right, just treatment, requital of desert, merited reward or punishment, that which is due to one's conduct or motives. Another definition, agreeableness to right, equity, justness, as in the justice of a claim. So putting all this together, we could summarize by saying that justice is doing what is right. It is acting with integrity. It is honesty. It is impartiality. One could add that it is obeying the law, perhaps, but that may depend on the law, the law you're talking about. We might ask, are all laws just? The same dictionary, Webster 1913 Dictionary, goes on to comment, quote, justice and equity are the same, but human laws, though designed to secure justice, are of necessity imperfect, and hence what is strictly legal at, is at times far from being equitable or just. So what it's saying here is that human devised laws are not always just. They do not always result in a just outcome. He goes on to say, and I'm quoting again, it would be an unfortunate use of language 
which you lead anyone to imagine he might have justice on his side while practicing iniquity. How can you have justice on your side if you're practicing iniquity? Now, it said that the laws of men are designed to, with justice in mind, but the fact is, the brutal fact is that some laws of men may be designed with justice in mind, but many of man's laws are inherently unjust. And not infrequently, they simply legalize unjust conduct or iniquity. The Bible, for example, speaks of the unjust judge in Luke chapter 18, verse 6, an unjust judge. Judges are supposed to administer justice according to the law. But judges can be unjust and not infrequently are. Jesus was, for example, convicted by a legal process by a body of judges that rendered an unjust verdict based on false testimony and malevolent motives on the part of the judges themselves. The apostles were commanded by the Sanhedrin, the highest court among the Jews at the time, not to teach the doctrines of Jesus Christ. And so we read in Acts 5, verse 29, Acts 5, verse 29, it says, But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. We ought to obey God rather than men. They had been ordered by the highest court of the land not to preach in the name of Jesus, but they ignored that demand because they had a commission from Jesus Christ to preach the gospel, and they were bound to do it, whatever the courts of, or the laws of men said. The Bible speaks of how iniquity can be framed in a law. We read in Psalm 94, Psalm 94 and verse 20, shall the throne of iniquity which devises evil by law have fellowship with you, with God that is? They gather against the life of the righteous and condemn innocent blood. This is talking about laws that, that uh, legalize iniquity at least in the eyes of men the same scripture in the King James Version is rendered as follows shall the throne of iniquity have fellowship with thee which frameth mischief by law which frameth mischief by law they gather themselves together against, against the soul of the righteous and condemn the innocent blood so laws can be passed which are intended and designed to promote and authorize unrighteous, unjust behavior. The Nuremberg Laws, for example, the Nuremberg Law or Laws decreed on September 15, 1935, 
made a, this is a, a, a quotation from, a, from a, a, an article in the National Archives of the United States government. It says, uh, the Nuremberg Laws decreed on September 15, 1935, made official the Nazi persecution of the Jews. But the legal, notice the word legal is here, the legal attack on the Jews actually began two years earlier. After the Nazis took power in Germany in 1933, they became increasingly engaged in activities involving the persecution of the Jewish and other minority populations. They did it under the color of law. Under the color of law, using official decrees as a weapon against the Jews. So here were laws which were used as weapons to destroy a particular group of people simply because of their ancestry. In 1933, goes on to say, the Jews were denied the right to hold public office or civil service positions. Jewish immigrants were denaturalized, meaning they lost their citizenship. Jews were denied employment by the press and radio, and Jews were excluded from farming. The following year, Jews were excluded from stock exchanges and stock brokerage, end quote. And this is from an article entitled The Nuremberg Laws from Prologue Magazine, winter 2010 on the website archives.gov. In 325 A.D., Constantine, emperor of the Roman Empire, convoked an assembly of bishops to bring the professing Christian church into harmony on the Passover Easter controversy and other matters. The council decreed that Easter Sunday should be kept in place of Passover among all professing Christians everywhere and following the council, Constantine issued edicts or laws forbidding heretics to assemble and authorizing confiscation of their property. Following over the centuries was severe persecution and murder of Christians who sought to keep the biblical Passover and other biblical doctrines, along with many others deemed heretics by the Catholic Church, numbering in the millions, many millions. These are just a few examples of the unjust laws of men who steal, plunder, persecute, oppress, and murder in the name of justice. And we could go on for many hours citing other examples of the injustice of men and how it is carried out. So how is God different? How is God different? What makes God, the God of the Bible, the God of justice? Well, there are several things that may be enumerated. This isn't necessarily a, an exhaustive list, but some things we can think about for purposes of this sermon. First of all, God has perfect understanding of right and wrong. I discussed that point in a sermon titled Right and Wrong, Who Decides? 
When Solomon became king over Israel, God appeared to him and told Solomon to ask what he would have God give to him. Solomon answered as follows in 2 Chronicles 1, beginning with verse 10. Solomon answered, Now give me wisdom and knowledge that I may go out and come before this people, or come, uh, go out and come in before this people. For who can judge this great people of yours? God said to Solomon, Because this was in your heart, and you have not asked riches or wealth or honor or the life of your enemies, and nor have you asked long life, but have asked wisdom and knowledge for yourself that you may judge my people over whom I have made you king. Wisdom and knowledge are granted to you, and I will give you riches and wealth and honor such as none of the kings have had who were before you, nor shall any after you have the like. And so the age of Solomon was a golden age in Israel in terms of its wealth, prosperity, and power of ancient Israel. Solomon was a wise king in many respects, although later on he did some foolish things. But it wasn't because God did not give him wisdom. He should have known better. And God did give Solomon wisdom. And we read in, in uh, 2 Kings 3 and verse 28, 2 Kings 3 and verse 28, all Israel heard of the judgment which, which the king had rendered, and they feared the king, for they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to administer justice. Notice that one of the keys to justice is wisdom, understanding, an understanding of right and wrong, having wisdom to apply the laws properly. In Proverbs 8, wisdom is spoken of as being personified and is speaking, uh, uh, is speaking in part of that chapter and wisdom says there in verse 15 of Proverbs 8, by me, that is by wisdom, kings reign and rulers decree justice. By wisdom, rulers decree justice. So for justice to be rendered, wisdom is required. It's, it's a prerequisite. It's a necessity. God's wisdom far exceeds that of any man or combination of men. The depth and power of God's wisdom and understanding are beyond human ability to fully measure, comprehend, much less match. And as we read in Romans chapter 11, beginning verse 33, Romans 11 and verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him? God's wisdom is incorporated into his word, into his laws. And it is on that basis that God makes his judgments. 
God judges us according to his word, according to his law. Moses told the people of Israel as uh, they were about to enter the promised land in Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 5, Deuteronomy 4 and verse 5, Moses said to them, Surely I have taught you statutes and judgments, just as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should act according to them in the land which you go to possess. Therefore be careful to observe them, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. So Moses told them that if they took heed to the laws and followed them, that that would be their wisdom and that they would be recognized as a wise and understanding people. Goes on to say in verse 7, For what great nation is there that has God so near it as the Lord our God is to us, for whatever reason we may call upon him? And what great nation is there that has such statutes and righteous judgments as are in all this law which I set before you this day? Now those laws that defined wisdom, those laws that were righteous and good judgments were God's laws. They were laws that God had set before the people of Israel. When men reject God's laws, when they reject his word, they reject knowledge, they reject wisdom, and they have no wisdom. As we read in Jeremiah 8 and verse 9, Jeremiah 8 and verse 9, the wise men are ashamed, they are dismayed and taken. Behold, they have rejected the word of the Lord. So what wisdom do they have? Once they've rejected the word of the Lord, there is no wisdom. That's our society, our world today. It's largely rejected, almost entirely rejected God's word, his laws, his way of life. So where do you find wisdom? You don't find it. Not real wisdom, not the wisdom of how to live one's life how to build a just society. That kind of wisdom is missing in our world today. Moses spoke what is called the Song of Moses to the Israelites just before his death as they were about to enter the Promised Land. This is in Deuteronomy chapter 32, beginning in verse 1. Deuteronomy 32 and verse 1, Moses said to the people of Israel, Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak, and hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. Let my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, as raindrops on the tender herb and as showers on the grass. For I proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. He is the rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of truth and without injustice. Righteous and upright is he. They, however, the people of the earth have corrupted themselves. They are not his children because of their blemish, a perverse and crooked generation. So God is a God of justice, but if we corrupt ourselves, 
If we forsake God and his laws, then he can disown us and disinherit us, even though we're his children. But one of the things that makes God the God of justice is his unfathomable wisdom. Secondly, God holds men accountable for their actions. A just judge will hold those being judged to account. Otherwise, there's no purpose in judging. Elihu said to Job, as we read in, in Job, I forgot to put down the chapter here. I think it's Job 32, maybe. Anyway, somewhere in that uh, part of the book. Anyway, in verse 10, Elihu says to Job, Therefore listen to me, you men of understanding. Far be it from God to do wickedness and from the Almighty to commit iniquity. Notice what he's saying here. He's saying, Far be it from God to do wickedness and from the Almighty to commit iniquity. And notice why he's saying this. He goes on to explain, for he repays man according to his work and makes man to find a reward according to his way. In other words, people receive their rewards based on what they do, what their works are, what, what kind of works they are. In Isaiah 3 and verse 10, Isaiah 3 and verse 10, it says, Say to the righteous, it shall be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their doings. Woe to the wicked, it shall be ill with him, for the reward of his hands shall be given him. That is justice. If you do what's right, you get the rewards that go with doing what's right. If you do evil, then you are rewarded accordingly. Jesus said in Matthew 16, verse 27, Matthew 16, verse 27, For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then, then he will reward each according to his works. In Romans 2, beginning with verse 4, Romans 2 and verse 4, we read, do you despise the riches of his goodness, that is, of God's goodness, forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the good, goodness of God leads you to repentance, but in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each according to his deeds. Eternal life... Who, to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality, but to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. 
So we see in these scriptures that God punishes, punishes the wicked in accordance with his transgressions and rewards the just. Now, we don't necessarily see that principle operating a great deal in today's world. But remember what Jesus Christ said. He said that when he comes to the earth, then he will render to each one according to his deeds. We need to understand and view God's justice from a long-term perspective because in this age, God allows injustice to flourish, at least for a time. Now, sooner or later, God intervenes and deals with individuals and nations, especially nations. But in many respects, God is taking a hands-off approach to dealing with the world right now, and injustice is allowed to flourish. But in the long run, in the end, God's judgment will prevail, and all will answer to God for their deeds, whether good or evil. But another factor which makes God the God of justice is that he holds men accountable. Another factor that makes God the God of justice is that God is impartial. God is absolutely impartial in the way he goes about judging. He does not judge people on the basis of their wealth or their poverty. He doesn't judge people on their outward appearance. He judges people on the basis of his law and what is in their hearts. Some of the laws displaying God's sense of impartial justice are as follows. This is from Exodus 23 and beginning with verse 1. Exodus 23 and verse 1. You shall not circulate a false report. Do not put your hand with the wicked to be an unrighteous witness. You shall not follow a crowd to do evil. You shall, nor shall you testify in a dispute as so as to turn aside after many to pervert justice. In other words, you don't just go along with the crowd or the mob and commit lawless acts because it is something that is being done by a mob or a crowd of people or the majority of people. You shall not show him show partiality to a poor man in his dispute. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall surely bring it back to him again. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying under its burden and you would refrain from helping it, you shall surely help him with it. You shall not pervert the judgment of your poor in his dispute. Keep yourself from a false matter. Do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not justify the wicked. You shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the discerning and perverts the words of the righteous. You shall not oppress a stranger, for you know the heart of a stranger because you were strangers in the land of Egypt. And then in Leviticus 19, verse 15, we have more instructions 
Ye shall do no injustice in judgment. Ye shall not be partial to the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty. In righteousness ye shall judge your neighbor. In Leviticus 19, verse 35, it says, Ye shall do no injustice in judgment, in measurement of length, weight, or volume. In uh, Deuteronomy 10, verse 17, Deuteronomy 10, verse 17, it says, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality nor takes a bribe. He administers justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the stranger giving him food and clothing. In Deuteronomy 16 and verse 19, we're told you shall not pervert justice, you shall not show partiality, nor take a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the righteous. In Deuteronomy 24 and verse 17, in following verses it says, Deuteronomy 24 verse 17, you shall not pervert justice do the stranger or the fatherless, nor take a widow's garment as a pledge. But you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore I commanded you to do this thing. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back and get it. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over the boughs again. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not glean it afterward. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. And you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this thing. Now, God upholds property rights. That's why he gave us laws against stealing and other laws which are designed to protect and enshrine property rights. But at the same time, notice God gave us instructions also on being generous and being considerate of others less fortunate. And he made provision for those who are poor. He made provision for the orphans, the widows, the foreigners, those who are less able to fend for themselves in his laws and how things were to be done in, in the society that he was creating through his commandments and statutes. So God made provision for the poor, the widows, the orphans, the strangers. But while God takes care of them, he does not pervert justice in their favor. And he does not, on the other hand, pervert justice in favor of the rich either. God is interested in justice for everyone. And notice too that they were to leave some of the produce of the fields and vineyards and so forth for the poor, the orphans, the widows, and so forth. But they also had to go out and do some work. 
it wasn't just they sent sent people who were unwilling or unable to work a check. Now, if if uh, they were completely unable to work, that would be a different matter. But but uh, just because a person is a widow or an orphan doesn't necessarily mean they're disabled. The same goes for a person who's a stranger in the land. They can go out and work and and to the extent that they were able to do that, then they were required to do it to help meet their own needs. In uh, Leviticus 19, beginning with verse 9, we see more instructions. Leviticus 19, verse 9, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not wholly reap the corners of your field, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest. And you shall not glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather every grape, of your vineyard, you shall leave them for the poor and the stranger. I am the Lord your God. You shall not steal nor deal falsely nor lie to one another. And you shall not swear by my name falsely. You shall not profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. In other words, this would apply to false worship of any kind, especially in the name of God. And we have a world full of that. You shall not cheat your neighbor nor rob him of the wages of him who is hired shall not remain with you all night until morning. You shall not curse the deaf, nor put a stumbling block before the blind, but shall fear, the, fear your God, I am the Lord. You, you shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty. In righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go about as a talebearer among your people. You shall take, uh, nor shall you take a stand against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the children of your people but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. When Moses appointed judges to help settle disputes among the Israelites, as he recounted later in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse, beginning with verse 15, he said, So I took the heads of your tribes, wise and knowledgeable men, and made them heads over you, leaders of thousands, leaders of hundreds, leaders of fifties, leaders of tens, and officers of your tribes. Then I commanded your judges at that time, saying, Hear the cases between your brethren, and judge righteously between a man and his brother or the stranger who is with him. You shall not show partiality in judgment. You shall hear the small as well as the great. You shall not be afraid in any, in any man's presence, for the judgment is God's. And the case that is too hard for you, bring to me and I will hear it. So another factor which makes God the God of justice is that he is impartial and he requires us to be impartial as well in judgment. We are not to judge unrighteously. The fourth factor which we will discuss that makes God the God of justice is that God is merciful and he tempers justice with mercy. God is merciful, but he tempers 
justice with mercy. In Psalm 89, verse 14, Psalm 89, verse 14, it says, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. But notice what is added here. Mercy and truth go before your face. So justice and mercy go together. In Psalm 72, Psalm 72 and verse 1, Give the king your judgments, O God, and your righteousness to the king's son. He will judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. The mountains shall bring peace to the people and the little hills by righteousness. This is speaking of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. He will bring justice to the poor of the people. He will save the children of the needy and will break in pieces the oppressor. They shall fear you as long as the sun and moon endure throughout all generations. He shall come down like rain upon the grass before mowing, like showers that water the earth. In his days the righteous shall flourish in abundance of peace until the moon is no more. God administers justice with mercy in mind. He is interested in the fate, the plight of the oppressed. He's interested in the welfare, the well-being of society and everyone involved in the society. And it's because of his mercy that he judges righteously. In Psalm 10 and verse 17, Psalm 10 and verse 17 says, He guides and teaches the humble. Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will prepare their heart. You will cause your ear to hear and to do, to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed that the man of the earth may oppress no more. God honors genuine humility. When we humble ourselves before God, genuinely humble ourselves, then he is prepared to work with us because God is... Uh, limited let's say by our willingness to cooperate with him and what he can do with us and for us how can you teach someone who resists being taught who refuses to learn but a person who's humble who's prepared to listen who wants to be taught the truth and what is right then God is ready to teach and God because he is merciful, wants justice for the fatherless and the oppressed. In Psalm 25, verse 8, Psalm 25, verse 8, Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore he teaches sinners in the way the humble he guides in justice, and the humble he teaches his way. When we humble ourselves before God, God is much more interested in teaching and guiding us than he is in punishing us. Now, he will punish us if we are wicked and we persist in wickedness, but he would much rather we humble ourselves before him so we can be taught the right path. In Psalm 103 and verse 6, Psalm 103 and verse 6, it says, The Lord executes righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. 
He made his, known his ways to Moses, his, his acts to the children of Israel. The Lord is, great, is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is, is his mercy toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his ways are like his days are like grass. As the flower of the field, so he flourishes. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place remembers it no more. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to such as keep his covenant and to those who remember his commandments to do them. The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. So we see here the depth of God's mercy, his willingness to Forgive us if we humble ourselves before him in repentance. In Psalm 99, Psalm 99, verse 1, it says, The Lord reigns. So this is a psalm about God's kingdom. The Lord reigns. Let the people tremble. He dwells between the cherubim. Let the earth be moved. The Lord is great in Zion, and he is high above all, all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. He is holy. The king's strength also loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God and worship as, at his footstool. He is holy. Moses and Aaron were among his priests, and Samuel was among those who called upon his name. They called upon the Lord... And he answered them. He spoke to them in the cloudy pillar. They kept his testimonies and the ordinance he gave them. You answered them, O Lord our God. You were to them God who forgives. You were to them God who forgives. Though you took vengeance on their deeds. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy hill, for the Lord our God is holy. Now God is merciful and he is anxious to forgive us when we are ready to humble ourselves before him and, and repent. God forgave Moses and Aaron and other faithful men and women. He forgave David and others. But he also sometimes punished those men and women for their sins to teach them important lessons. Even though they were not on the whole rebellious against God, they were seeking to obey God and serve God, sometimes they did wrong and sometimes they paid a price. 
He punished Moses and Aaron, for example, when they failed to hallow God in the wilderness of Zin when the people contended with them because of a lack of water. God gave them water out of a rock. God had said to Moses, as we read in Numbers 20 and verse, beginning with verse 8, Numbers 20 and verse 8, God said to Moses when the people were complaining about having no water, he said, take the rod, you and your brother Aaron, gather the congregation together. Speak to the rock before their eyes and it will yield its water. Thus you shall bring water for them out of the rock and give drink to the congregation and their animals. So Moses took the rod from the before the Lord as he commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the, the rock. And he said to them, now this is Moses speaking, he said to them, Hear now, you rebels, must we bring water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation of their animals drank. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and said, Because you did not believe me to hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I had given them. God was not pleased with how Moses handled this situation. He was not pleased that Moses did not honor God, instead speaking rashly. And instead of speaking to the rock before their eyes, he spoke to the people in a very impertinent way saying here now you rebels must we bring water for you out of this rock now they were rebels but that's not what God had told him to do in that situation and he also didn't tell him to strike the rock he told him to speak to the rock having the rod in his hand and this in a sense, was an insult to God. It did not put God in a proper light in the eyes of the people. God was displeased with what Moses and Aaron did. And so we read in Numbers 20 and verse 23, the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in Mount Hor by the border of the land of Edom, saying, Aaron shall be gathered to his people, for he shall not enter the land which I have given to the children of Israel, because you rebelled against my word at the water of Meribah. Take Aaron and Eleazar his son and bring them up to Mount Hor. And so uh, Eleazar was anointed the high priest in place of Aaron, and Aaron died. And then later on we read in uh, Numbers 27, Numbers 27, verse 12. Now the Lord said to Moses, Go up to this Mount Abarim and see the land which I have given to the children of Israel. And when you have seen it, you also shall be gathered to your people as Aaron your brother was gathered. For in the wilderness of Zin, during the strife of the congregation, you rebelled against my command to hallow me at their waters before their eyes. These are the waters of Meribah at Kadesh, in the wilderness of Zen. The Kyle and Delich commentary commenting on what we've just read says, 
the want of belief or firm confidence in the Lord through which both of them, that is Aaron and Moses, had sinned was not actual unbelief or distrust in the omnipotence and grace of God, as if God could not relieve the want of water or extend his help to the murmuring people. For the Lord had promised his help to Moses, and Moses did what the Lord commanded him. It was simply the want of full believing confidence, a momentary wavering of that immovable assurance which the two heads of the nation ought to have shown to the congregation, but did not show. Moses did even more than God had commanded him. At least that's how they put it. Actually, he did the opposite of what God commanded him. It goes on to say, instead of speaking to the rock with the rod of God in his hand as God directed him, he spoke to the congregation. And in these inconsiderate words, shall we fetch you water out of the rock? Words which if they did not express any doubt any in the help of the Lord were certainly fitted to strengthen the people in their unbelief and are therefore described in Psalm 106 verse 33 as prating or speaking unadvisedly, or as it says in the King, New King James Version, rashly, with the lips. Going on with the Kyle and Delich commentary, it says, he then struck the rock twice with the rod as if it depended on human exertion and not on the power of God alone. Or as if the promise of God would not have been fulfilled without all this smiting on his part. In the ill will expressed in these words, the weakness of faith was manifested by which the faithful servant of God, worn out with the numerous temptations, allowed himself to be overcome so that he stumbled and did not sanctify the Lord before the eyes of the people as he ought to have done. Aaron also wavered along with Moses inasmuch as he did nothing to prevent Moses' fall. But their sin became a grievous one from the fact that they acted unworthily of their office. God punished them, therefore, by withdrawing their office from them before they had finished the work entrusted to them. They were not to conduct the congregation into the promised land and therefore not, were not to enter in themselves. So God is merciful, but God doesn't always let us completely off the hook when we do wrong. And there are many examples in the Bible of people who were seeking on the whole to obey God but made mistakes, sometimes very serious mistakes. And although God forgave them and God was merciful in dealing with them, nevertheless, they were punished in some way. But God is merciful, and in the end, mercy triumphs over judgment. As we read in James 2 and verse 13, judgment is without mercy to the one who, who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So we need to keep that in mind when we're judging others that we need to be merciful in our own judgments. Because if we're not merciful to others, then God has no obligation to be merciful to us. And in his judgment, mercy triumphs over judgment. We ought to be very thankful that the God who rules the universe for eternity is merciful 
and yet he is a God of justice. We are admonished and encouraged by the psalmist who wrote in Psalm 37, beginning in verse 27, Psalm 37, verse 27, depart from evil and do good and dwell forevermore. For the Lord loves justice and does not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever, but the descendants of the wicked shall, will be, shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell in it forever. The mouth of the righteous speaks wisdom and his tongue talks of justice. The law of God is in his heart. None of his steps shall slide. 